Do you have any questions or comments or things you'd like to talk about? I've never heard such a clear exposition of the importance of that final step of mindfulness of seeing without the filters of the hindrances what you're actually seeing. Mm -hmm. And yet it's such a crucial part and seems to be left out of so many teachings about what the practice is. And then, and then when you do that, when you give that definition, all of those other things out there, all of which have ulterior motives to them, become immediately not mindfulness, like mindfulness for stress reduction or whatever. So in a way, it's, it's a co-opted phrase. <laughs> well, I would say it depends how it's being taught, you know, and who's teaching it, because um, even though uh, it may not have been as explicit as I talked about it uh, this afternoon. I think in the way that even within the context of Vipassana retreats, uh, it's been implicit that, that mindfulness is seeing without aversion and uh, desire, and that when those arise, they themselves become the object you know, of the mindfulness. Uh, and I imagine that, because I, I don't know everybody who's out there teaching mindfulness, but I imagine there's a whole range of understanding, you know. And so it probably is there in some contexts and with some teachers and not there with others. That's why, it's actually why I named my last book Mindfulness. I wanted to reclaim the word. <laughs> of course, I don't know how many people are going to plow through it, but... <laughs> Um, so I, uh, you described for us what mindfulness is very clearly, um, and speaking for myself, um, it's a process. You know, there's this process. Um, and, and, and here's what you described out here. And some days I'm over here, and some days I'm somewhere else along the way. Um, you didn't speak about that in your talk, and I wonder if you could address that for a moment, mm -hmm. this, this process of there you go. Uh, mindfulness. Yeah, well, as we know, mindfulness itself is impermanent. <laughs> and <laughs> It's conditioned, you know, when the conditions are there, <laughs> it's stronger, and then if the conditions change, it may be weaker or absent. Uh, that's why some of the tools, uh, the reminders to check in, I think are very helpful, knowing that we're not, uh, we're not continuously mindful. Uh, so, for example, just that suggestion of 
as we're sitting or walking or just going through the day, just asking like, well, what's the attitude in the mind now? You know, or it can be phrased in any way. That's just the way Tejaniya phrased it. So that's a reminder to check in whether those filters are there or they're not there. And if they are there, then often just by asking the question, we're already back, you know, and, and we're seeing it. Uh, using the, f- the reference point of, you know, the in order to mind. Am I with something in order for something to happen? So these are just reminders to check whether we're actually mindful or not. And this is our practice. You know, and, and the more, um, the more we do it, and the, m- the clearer our understanding of what mindfulness is, I think the easier it is to access it. If we're confused, you know, well, we kind of have a vague idea of what it means, but not exactly. So then it's more hit and miss, which is why I wanted to, you know, as much as possible, clarify the particular qualities that are present with mindfulness. But it, it's, as you say, it, it definitely is a process. Um, so I would say, continue the process. <laughs> 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 yeah. Yeah. We'll just kind of go around the room. Uh, Joseph, I wanted to ask you about the very word mindfulness. Because as we teach mindfulness, this same question comes, what is it? Mm-hmm. But to go from sati to mindfulness, uh, I read sometimes that it was maybe an unfortunate translation because it doesn't really reveal what it is. Mm-hmm. And the question is whether you attempted to rephrase it or mm-hmm. find another word that may be more pertinent. Uh, I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> Have you? Have you come up with a better... Yeah. You know, I mean, there are a lot of words that it can often get confusing because even in the context of teaching about it, words like awareness, is awareness and mindfulness the same thing or is it different? You know, or we use the word knowing, we use the word consciousness, you know, to be conscious of something. Does that mean being mindful or? So in the use of the words, because the Pali is much more specific with regard to exactly what it's talking about, as it gets translated into English or other languages, we often translate it into words that have multiple meanings. So it can get really confusing unless we're really defining what we mean by the term. Another example of that is the word desire. You know, in English, there's a wide range of what desire means. Some of it is the desire of tanha, of thirst, of greed. But we also use it in English just the motivation to do something, the desire to do something. That's not necessarily associated with greed. There might be, but it. And so this is just an example. It it is a problem of translation. And I think it does take... uh, Oh, the the importance of clarifying how we're using the terms. Uh, So my practice seems to be a lot about... um, 
in mindfulness, what I call mindfulness of those very defilements. Mm -hmm. And if I understand what you're saying, it's not really mindfulness until there isn't that filter? Well, no, that's a great question. Uh, I think what would be interesting to observe is that in the very moment of being mindful of aversion or mindful of desire and that mindfulness could be made even more explicit if you're using a note, you know, oh, aversion, desire. In that moment, the mind is not averse. The mind is not greedy. You know, it's really, it's really seeing the previous mind moment. Of course, you know, it happened so quickly, but it's very interesting to, to notice that at those moments you are actually free of the hindrance. You know, and then the next moment you might be caught in it again. So I, just an image I use, and I don't know whether it'll be helpful or not, but sometimes I see the presence of a hindrance like a cloud in the mind, a cloud of aversion or a cloud of desire, which uh, is representative of that hindrance arising over many mind moments. And I see moments of mindfulness, this is really a mixed metaphor, I think, <laughs> but <laughs> of poking hole, holes in the cloud. <laughs> in each moment of, oh, desire, <laughs> you know, aversion. <laughs> and you poke enough holes and the cloud disperses. Does that make any sense? <laughs> yeah, so what you're saying also points to another instruction that's often overlooked and I think is exceedingly important for us and this again goes to the third foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of mind basically it's to know when greed is present and when it's not present when aversion is present when it's not present so normally we're focused on when it's present but we're not paying attention to all those moments when it's not present. You know, and so I think uh, that may be one of the reasons why we have a distorted, critical view of our minds. <laughs> because we're really focusing on when the calaises, when the defilements are present, and you know, because they stand out. And we're missing the many times when the mind is free of them. That's why I like that last instruction I was talking about, you know, when seeing impermanence, the mind's not clinging, and to actually pay attention, you know, be, be being mindful in the experience of not clinging. You know, and after a while, that can become very familiar. Thank you. Yeah. And, and the defilements include delusion. Yeah, oh yeah. That delusion is <laughs> delusion is the root of most of them. Yeah. <laughs> My question is uh, more about the way Buddhism is taught here in the West. There is a taboo, explicit or implicit, uh, against discussing attainments, uh, against setting explicit goals for practice which seem to be motivated by not wanting us to be striving too much or clinging or avoiding the hindrances. But that seems a little different in the IMS spirit rock world than some other schools of teaching Buddhism. 
uh, whether it's Daniel Ingram and Kenneth Falk and the hardcore Dharma crowd or other more venerable schools. And I'm curious, not a specific question, but mm -hmm. what motivates that mindset towards the teaching? Mm -hmm. I think there are two different issues there. One is um, I don't know the right word expressing attainments or uh, and the other is setting goals. But I think those are two different things. Yes, I agree. Uh, with respect to the first one, there are both uh, pragmatic reasons that I feel it's not that helpful, but it's also right in the text. The Buddha uh, very explicitly said uh, that one shouldn't claim attainment. It's really described that uh, it's better to talk about in the mind of an arhant, these defilements don't arise, and keeping the sense of self out of it. You know, and so I think that's a better way, if one is talking about the nature of the enlightened mind, to talk about the actual experience of what that means, rather than it becoming self-referential in some way. Uh, the the other reason I think it's not that helpful is how do you assess the truth of it? <laughs> I could say, you know, I'm enlightened. And so what does that do for you? You, you have no way of knowing whether that's true or not true, or whether I'm deluding myself, or whether... And so I don't see the point. You know. I do think it's important, and I'm all for goals in practice. I mean, I, I think, and perhaps we have underplayed, the path is a path, and the path leads someplace, and people are actually walking on that path and accomplishing it. So I'm, I'm all for putting that out in a really clear way and encouraging people in that way. So I, I have kind of two different views with respect to the two questions. Uh. On mindfulness, you um, talked about uh, wisdom and the use of, um, uh, whether it's skillful or unskillful. Are there any other qualities that you would add to that list, or would that be pretty much the only one? Well. Skillful and unskillful, of course, can be then broken down <laughs> more specifically into the whole list of wholesome qualities and the whole list of unwholesome qualities. Uh, but also the wisdom component is what sees the impermanent, unsatisfying, selfless nature of things. So... Uh, that's one arena in which wisdom uh, is activated. So I don't know if that is what you were getting at. Well, uh, uh, sometimes uh, in meditation it's, it's not as easy sometimes to say is this skillful or is this unskillful. Sometimes you have to explore it some, in some 
more broader sense. And yeah, I, I mean, I think sometimes things do take an exploration. The um, in some way, the Buddha simplified it for us in terms of describing the three wholesome roots, the three unwholesome roots. And so in that, in, within, within that framework, all skillful actions are rooted in non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. And all unwholesome actions are rooted in greed, hatred, delusion. So one of the questions could be, if we're exploring it, is there an aspect of greed here? Is there an aspect of aversion? Is there an aspect of delusion? Of course, that, that's the hardest one. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that, that, could be, that could be the beginning of the exploration, and sometimes it's not clear. So I'll give you an, I'll give you an example of uh, states that can be confused. A common one in practice we can confuse, uh, and this actually goes to the previous question, we can confuse expectation with aspiration. So these are really two different qualities. You know, aspiration can be very wholesome. We have an aspiration for enlightenment, for awakening, for compassion. Expectation has the wanting mind in it. You know, the wanting of a, of a yeah, it should, it should be happening now the way I want it to happen. But often we're not seeing that distinction and so we're lost in the expecting mind thinking it's aspiration. Yeah. So that's, that's an example of sometimes it does take uh, some investigation. Um, one of the... Uh, one feedback in terms of whether it's skillful or unskillful mind state happening. Uh, I'm hesitating because I, uh, this is true in, some ca in many cases, but not necessarily all cases, but maybe in most cases. <laughs> uh, whether we're experiencing a sense of struggle. You know, if we're struggling in our practice. Almost always, I would say, struggle is a feedback that something is going on that we're not accepting. Because if we were accepting it, we wouldn't be struggling. You know? And so, it's very often with something unpleasant. Whether it's an unpleasant physical sensation, on pleasant emotion, or even just having a lot of wandering mind. You know, if we're sitting there and there's a kind of unease that's going on, some struggle, and it doesn't have to be dramatic, it can be just some level of agitation in our practice, that, instead of seeing that as a problem, to see it as feedback. Okay, what's going on that's creating the unease? You know, and my experience is that almost always it's because there's expectation, it's wanting something or wanting to get rid of something. Uh, 
My question is, um, what process would you suggest or recommend when you find, when you recognize that you have a persistent um, reaction of aversion at certain habitual behavior of specific individuals. So this is behavior yes, that you've it. encountered a number of times and you're talking to them on the phone <laughs> and, <laughs> and you hear it coming. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I feel already something like that happened to me yesterday. And I've tried different things, both in my practice and in trying right. to communicate to this person that I'd rather not hear this. <laughs> and uh, on one situation, um, I have been able to actually loosen up the knots and see that there was actually a whole chain of things that are linked to the present, to the mm. past, and what have you. That was a particularly meaningful and intense, you know, aversive reaction. In some cases, the behavior seems <laughs> relatively trivial or petty. Um, mm -hmm. But I feel really imposed, put upon, you know what I mean? If something is violated. I do know what you mean. If something <laughs> is violated. <laughs> I think we all do. <laughs> so, uh, can, can you suggest yes. a process so that in, um, our practice, we can yes. look at this aversion yes. and kind of, you know, open it up. Yeah. Okay. I was just waiting for that question. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is a little demonstration. This is point A. So point A is the situation that's arising, this irritating person, okay, or Something, ha something happens, there's, there's a problematic situation. Point B is our reaction to it. So maybe we get annoyed, we get irritated, we get angry. We, right? Generally, what happens is that as we get annoyed or irritated, we think more about the situation. And that just makes us more irritated. And we think about the person and they're really jerks. And <laughs> Okay, so we're just looping around between A and B, right? and we're really caught in that loop. So the key is moving to point C. Now point C is asking the question, how am I relating to the annoyance? How am I relating to the aversion? As soon as you move to point C, A has become irrelevant. A has nothing whatsoever to do with how we're relating to the emotion. As long as we're looping between A and B, we have given the power to A. Right? We're saying, we're s basically, we're saying, you're making me feel this way. Right? As soon as we m go to point C, A is out of the picture. Right? How we're relating to what's arising within us is completely within our power. So it's tremendously empowering and interesting and an arena of investigation. I had this experience, I mean, this whole model came to me out of an experience I had many, many years ago at IMS. Somebody in the community did something that I just thought was really harmful for the community. And for some reason, it just, it just triggered this 
huge anger in me. And of the three personality types, I'm, I'm not the angry type, I'm the greedy type. <laughs> when I'm presented with a choice, both. <laughs> so the anger, I mean, it's, it was, and it was so strong. I mean, I, so I went to sleep and it woke me at like four in the morning. The energy was still coursing in my body and it woke me up. So at that point, I ju- it really piqued my interest. It's like, what is going on here? And the question spontaneously came, how am I getting so hooked? That I didn't know this model at the time, but that was an effect going to point C. Right? How am I getting hooked by this? It was amazing. In that particular situation, I'm not going to suggest this happens like this every time, but in that situation, in that moment of asking myself, how am I getting hooked? The whole storm of anger passed through. And what was so interesting, as that passed through, just that next morning, I could go to this person, have a conversation. I had let go of my own reactivity. And then we had a discussion about what happened. It was much more fruitful than if I had gone venting my anger or feeling very angry. So it's very helpful pragmatically in terms of resolving difficult situations to free ourselves from our own reactivity first. And that is totally within our (coughs) capacity because the person has nothing to do with how we're relating to what's going on. Do you follow? So uh, I would just experiment and you know, you'll find your own words. For me, I like the expression, how am I getting hooked? Because it just, it really makes me look. You may have different words. You know, you might say, how am I relating to this? Or whatever, find your own words that work. Okay, so there's another teaching related to this, which is very powerful and some people find very uh, disturbing. So we'll try it out and see if any of you get disturbed. This is something Saida Upandita once said, and he said, we are 100% responsible for our suffering. 100%, not 99%, not 100%. That conditions may create difficult things to arise, that clearly happens. But again, how we are relating to that we are 100% responsible for that. So years ago I was in a relationship, it was many years ago, and we were having a little argument, and my friend turned to me and she said, stop making me feel aversion. (laughs) 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 And I started to laugh, which was not a good idea. I learned that lesson. (laughs) But that's the common way we're relating to life. Stop making me feel this way. Instead of taking responsibility for... Okay, the situation may call up certain feelings, and that's true, but how we relate to that, are we identified with it? You know, are we caught up in it or not? That's just totally up to us. Uh, 
So it's power. This is a powerful teaching, you know, if we really are taking responsibility. So one more story, and it just approaches it from another side. So again, this goes back many years. There was one person that I was seeing frequently who just just had the most difficult personality, you know, kind of abrasive and assaulting and difficult. They were just difficult to be with. And I was seeing them a lot. <laughs> and, and so I would be, st- every time we were, t- I, I, I kind of have to steel myself to, okay, just. <laughs> and then one day, you know, we were together and for the very first time, I actually saw the person. Literally, I, I looked and I, I could see so clearly the suffering out of which the behavior was coming. You know, and it was amazing to me because for so long I had been reactive to the behavior, which is what we often do. And we don't often take the time to drop below and actually to see what's there. You know? And what was so amazing to me is it was so obvious. You know, the suffering was so obvious. And as soon as I saw it, and again, this is another one of those moments, as soon as I saw it, all the reactivity went away and it totally morphed into compassion. Not spontaneously. I didn't have to think, oh, now I'm going to be compassionate. It's just in seeing the suffering. And from that point, there was just this warm, engaged feeling with this person. So that's, that's another way of seeing you know, about our relationship with difficult people. Um, sometimes it's easier to do that. Okay, one more. <laughs> Everything becomes a whole Dharma talk. There's one, there's one other teaching of the Buddha that is fantastic, hugely challenging. And he talk, he's talking about, it's the aspect of right speech which is right listening, right? how we listen. So he's talking about how people may speak to us. And he goes through this whole list. He says, people may speak to us gently or harshly, truthfully or untruthfully with an intent to harm or intent for goodwill, you know, filled with metta, filled with hatred. So he goes through this whole list. And then he says, regardless of how people are speaking with us, we should abide with with loving kindness, compassionate for their welfare. Okay, so just imagine, somebody's speaking to you, they're lying, they're angry, they hate you, (laughs) they have an intent to harm, we should abide with a heart of loving-kindness, compassionate for their welfare. That's a high bar, but I love it because it just points, okay, that's our practice, and we often fail miserably, (laughs) but if we have it in our minds, Okay, can we, can we just practice trying to remember that at times? 
And that ties into something in the Satipatthana Sutta, which again we often overlook, the reminder to practice mindfulness internally and externally. So that whole thing that the Buddha just said is really practicing mindfulness externally. We're mindful of the other person speaking in these ways. Right? But mindfulness means being aware without aversion. So, do you see the power of that? It takes practice, especially in those situations. So there's a, there's a lot. Well, I hope this isn't off topic, but Joseph, between you and me, <laughs> and everybody else, <laughs> why are we here? In the big metaphysical sense? <laughs> Well, you've been meditating 20, 30 years. Maybe you, you might have experience with it, mm-hmm. that question. Not necessarily an answer, but... Uh, well, Trungpa Rinpoche, I think, had the best answer. Somebody asked him, what is it that's reborn? He said, you're neurosis. <laughs> That's why we're here. (laughs) And our challenge is to practice freeing ourselves from being caught up in our neuroses. I think that really gets to it. Maybe this is a similar question. Um, in your book, in the mindfulness book, on the subject of renunciation, uh, you who are famous for this, there's nothing that's not worth letting go of, talk about a different way of renunciation, which is non-addiction, mm-hmm. which hooked me. <laughs> and I'm wondering if you could talk about that. Yeah. The, because it is a different way. It's, it, it has less about what you're doing. Well, first to say, renunciation is not my strong point. (laughs) And so I'm really interested in, given that the Buddha gave so much emphasis to it, you know, so uh, it makes me really look and explore, okay, well, you know, what does it mean and how can it be understood? And I think growing up in especially in our culture, in the kind of, you know, the materialistic, abundant culture that, you know, most of us live in, it's not even a value. You know, there's, there's <laughs> how much internet spam, you know, says, you get with the tagline, increase your desire, <laughs> as if that's a good idea, <laughs> you know, or I was walking in New York, uh, just on the street, and passed a store, and the sign says, the sign in the store window said, don't let desire pass you by. (laughs) 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 So, you know, we've we've just been, (laughs) as if, you know, the fulfillment of our desires is going to somehow make us ultimately happy. And so that's a strong tendency. Renunciation 
given all that, to me, and I think maybe to others, it sounds burdensome. Just the thought of it, it's like it, the word almost contains within it a sense of deprivation. Oh, I'm going to be giving something up. So, but when I really looked at what it means in the mind, and then as I talked about in the book, reframing it as non-addiction to our desires, that, for me, that phrase contained within it an understanding of liberation. You know, yeah, non-addiction. Who wants to be addicted? You know, and we can kind of get a feeling of the freedom that's there when we're not addicted. And that really is what renunciation is. You know, it's letting go of the addiction to whatever, you know, the sense pleasures are. Now, as lay people, we're navigating a tricky realm. You know, for monastics, somebody once asked uh, one of our teachers, you know, why become a monastic? And he said, because it's easier. <laughs> you know, but for us, for many of us anyway, we think, oh, that's, that's really the hard, you know. But actually, when you look at it, that whole form supports non-addiction. We're out there in the midst of sense pleasures and sense delights, and the Buddha acknowledged that. You know, and so there are very different guidelines for monastics and for lay people. So we each have to kind of explore our own lives and our own experience. When is it too much? When are we getting addicted? Can we have periods of time where we do renounce certain things to experience just the greater ease? So I, I just think it's a huge arena of investigation for us. Uh, yes, so that we can see the freedom in the mind when it is non-addicted. So, just another sequence of teachings that I've, I've found really helpful. Again, found frequently in the suttas, starting with impermanence again. In seeing the flow of impermanence, the Buddhist talked of how the mind becomes disenchanted. Being disenchanted, it becomes dispassionate. Becoming dispassionate, it lets go. In the letting go, there's freedom. And so it's, it's very interesting to, in the same way I talked about with the other sequence, when we're experiencing the flow of impermanence, to actually turn back to the mind and see that it is not being, at those times, it is not being enchanted by what's arising. Right? Because we're seeing the impermanence of it. And that gives a, a visceral experience of the freedom of disenchantment. Right? It's like waking up from the spell of enchantment. We could say addiction. So we, we actually taste the ease of that. And to, to, to spend some time exploring what disenchantment means. And then to go from disenchantment, when the mind is disenchanted, it's dispassionate. 
Now often we hear that and as lay people in the world, well, who wants to be dispassionate? You know, I like my passion, isn't passion good? And, but that's, that's not seeing clearly what it actually means. You know, and so we're seeing the flow of impermanence and seeing, oh yeah, at this time the mind is disenchanted. It's, it's, and when it's disenchanted, it's dispassionate. The translation is viraga, basically non-lustful. We're not lusting after the moment's experience. So in that, when we're actually seeing it, experiencing that, we experience the peace and the happiness of the mind that is dispassionate. You know, it's, it's not kind of a, a gray, uncreative blah. It's a heart, a mind at peace. And actually, that peace is, is the arena of creativity. You know, a lot comes out of the peace. So, this just all of this to explore. Thank you. Yeah. So, I wanted to ask you about the, the example you gave where you go from A to B and mm -hmm. you're watching how you're reacting, right? So, you create this loop. Obviously, in that loop, there's no mindfulness. Right? So then, when you move to C, and you question, how am I relating? In that moment, let's say the anger is still there. But because there is space, we are mindful, mm -hmm. correct? Yeah. Okay. I mean, in the very moment, it's like when I move to C, when I ask myself, how am I getting hooked? In that, in the moment of asking the question, I was no longer angry. I was in, uh, it's like I changed mm -hmm. the place, the position in the mind from being identified with the anger to a place of investigation, right? And in that place, how am I getting hooked? In that moment, the mind was not angry and that's what actually freed it. Mm -hmm. So that, that's the value of going to, going to see. So then we can say that uh, we, are pr we are practicing mindfulness um, depending on how we're relating to yeah. the obstacle. Yeah, yeah definitely, okay. definitely. And again, it's, it's not just, you know, mindfulness is one of the factors, but in this case, it's also the investigation factor, which, which is another word for, for the wisdom factor. So it, it, and there's the energy factor, there's the right effort, for, you know. So all of these wholesome factors are coming together in going to point C. It's mindfulness, it's investigation, it's... And in the meantime, when, when let's say, anger has not dissolved yet, mm -hmm. but I am investigating yeah. it, I'm still being mindful, correct? Well, it's, it's like I said, that's, that's the, like the example of that cloud. That you're you know. poking. Yeah. Yeah. So it, okay. you're going back and forth between moments where you're really looking and then that's moments good. being caught again. Okay. Yeah. Another, there's so much that's interesting. <laughs> Another really interesting thing to observe is the relationship of thought to emotion. You know how very often a thought will arise and just immediately trigger an emotional response. And I just, to me it's... It's just amazing to watch. And so, so I, I was having one experience where, I don't know, it had something to do with IMS 
governance or whatever. And so I would I would think about something and get annoyed. <laughs> and I saw this I saw this happen. So then I started playing. I, I purposely would think of it. And each time I thought of it I got annoyed. <laughs> I, it seemed so ridiculous. <laughs> because I knew it was gonna happen and it still happened. <laughs> I, and so what it showed, I mean, it really just showed the impersonality of it, you know, the, the non-selfness of it. And it kind of weakened, you know, I, I was just, I was amused by the mind. I was just, you know, laughing at the process. And sometimes it works the other way. Sometimes emotions condition thoughts. You know, we may be in a big emotion and then it triggers all kinds of thoughts. So to see that relationship is really helpful. You invited both uh, observations and, and questions, and I have one of each, an observation that, that leads to a question. Uh, one of the reasons, as you suggest, that the suttas are endlessly engaging is that we can toggle back and forth between sutta as description and mm -hmm. sutta as instruction. And I was really struck today by, if I did that quite quickly, between your instruction drawn from the third of the, of the three portions of the so-called refrain, uh, and then the thrust of your talk about how mindfulness leads to wisdom, leads to release, leads to mm. non-clinging. Um, it's actually possible to see a description of a, of a sequence there. That is, and to give a shorthand version, uh, if mindfulness is well established in the body, that progressive sequence, def defined progressively like people like Analio in his most recent book and Tan Jeff, um, Increasingly, the mind uh, is less disturbed by uh, inward and outward, seeing things increasingly in outwardly, to coin a phrase. Um, that seems to prepare the mind to accept or to um, receive an impermanent or inconstant um, mm -hmm. experience of phenomena. And those seem to pave the way, perhaps, for the, the last portion of the third part of the refrain, right after continuous mindfulness in Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation, I think, abiding independent mm -hmm. um, without clinging to anything in the world. And the problem with that is something you've made mentioned a couple times today, and it may go back to the toggling between description and instruction, is the inwardly outwardly. As you know, early on, I mean, the earliest commentaries jump to the conclusion that this refers to myself to, mm -hmm. or my body mm -hmm. and the body of others and yet that's problematic for a number of reasons the very first instruction uh, for the mindfulness of, the, of breathing is to go to the forest to the root of a tree or to an empty hut in other words where there are no other bodies mm. I just wonder I'm very curious and I found in my own practice that thinking about inward and outward um, not having to do with with others so much as the way experience can seem inward and outward, but then less so as the mind settles. I'm just wondering whether, whether you found other ways as both description or practice that inward, outward, and inoutwardly mm -hmm. uh, are effective practice or effective d description of how you get from mindfulness mm -hmm. to release. 
<laughs> so, I find that useful, that distinction of this and other people, mindful internally, external or inner, outer, particularly helpful when other people are annoying me. <laughs> so, for example, you're sitting in a hall and somebody next to you is breathing loudly. So the mind gets irritated. <laughs> you know, why are they breathing loudly? That's one response. Applying mindfulness externally in that very, you could call it a gross sense, or, oh, I can be mindful of this person's breathing. Uh, or in that speech, that, that speech thing, you know, of how we listen, being mindful externally really seems to apply and, and helpful. So the other, where internal and external begins to disappear, uh, is very much my experience in what we started with this afternoon, that frame, there is a body, whether sitting or walking, moving about. For me, that frame then became a frame in which everything appeared. So sounds appear, sights appear, and, and inner and outer, that, that no longer means anything. It's just appearances arising. So I see value in, in both. Wait, why don't you wait for the mic? I have a question about um, something I've been struggling with in my practice. Um, and I've been, <laughs> I've been struggling to hold on to my question through many people. Uh, so I'm clinging to my question, but, I, but it is something that, um, that I would love your perspective on. Um, in the, y when you talk about noticing, um, you know, noticing things and then they get weaker um, through the noticing, through the mindfulness. Uh, um, sometimes. Sometimes. Sometimes they get stronger. Right, okay. Mm. Um, I have a question about part of the instruction in the Satipatthana Sutta where um, he talks about uh, seeing a fetter arise and then knowing, knowing what causes a fetter to arise and knowing what causes an unarisen fetter to arise and knowing what mm. causes a fetter to cease. Um, and that, like, that part of it is making me, like, that's where my struggle comes because it feels like there's a system like that if I'm watching that there's going to be a system and I'm going to be able to prevent prevent mm -hmm. being not just notice being hooked but like prevent being mm -hmm. hooked mm -hmm. and um and it seems a little bit different from just noticing that that clinging is happening um it seems like mm -hmm. a different type of instruction and mm -hmm. I wondered if you could help me <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> You know, one of the things I love about being on retreat is that it just encounters all of these questions and <laughs> all of these problems. And so I'll, I'll just give you an example of, of something that worked amazingly well for me, just in this regard of preventing unarisen defilements from arising. 
but it came about from having noticed the arisen defilements <laughs> over and over again. So, when I was on retreat, I would notice a group retreat. I would notice that every time went into the dining room for a meal, my mind would have a comment about almost everybody. <laughs> I didn't like what they were wearing, or I did like what they were wearing. They were moving too quickly, or moving too slowly, or they took too much food, or took too little food. Ridiculous, but ongoing. I mean, there was, there was just a ridiculous pattern of the mind, this commenting, judging mind. So I learned a lot about the judging mind. You know, and the, uh, the, could approach it from many different angles, but the one here. So I noticed that all of that judgment came about because I was not mindful of seeing. It all came through the eye door. I was seeing people, and because I was unmindful that I was seeing, that triggered all of these judgments. What I started to do is, whenever I entered the dining room, all I would note was seeing. That's the only note I would be making, seeing. I was just mindful of that sense door, seeing, seeing, seeing. There were no judgments at all. That the mindfulness, you know, of bringing it back to where it arose and being mindful completely eliminated the opportunity, you know, for the, and it was so freeing. And this just is a sidebar to this particular point. Seeing is a very underrepresented field for our mindful attention. And I would highly recommend to bring it in more because for most of us, it's the predominant sense field. We are living in the world of what we see, most, for most people. And if we're not mindful of it, we are going through the whole day reactive to what we're seeing. You know, of liking, of not liking, of commenting, judging, just... And so to bring that mindfulness in, it accomplishes exactly what that instruction is about. So that's just one example, and you could apply it to any, you know, you could apply it to any of the sense bases. So it's, it was really freeing. So I, I have a question too. <laughs> <laughs> but first, what time uh, is it? What? <laughs> first, I want to thank you, and um, and. Uh, to me, it's uh, very special to have you come to IRC. Uh, and I first, I apologize for using another I acronym. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you thought you had the monopoly early on, but <laughs> we're regularly confusing people. I apologize. But um, it's very special to have you come here because uh, you had a big impact on me as a teacher for me and as a model and example for me. And and what you created, both through IMS and this whole scene, I feel I benefited from. And so uh, IRC here is, uh, you know, I think of it a little bit as uh, flowering of seeds mm. that you planted. And to have you come here and 
and uh, bless it or just offer your teachings here is very special and it's uh, wonderful I thank you Mm -hmm. so another question uh oh (laughs) make it easy (laughs) so um, uh, the good number of people here uh, not only come to IRC to practice here but also um, uh, volunteer here helping to run the place run the retreats and everything so the idea of running a retreat center is part of the practice mm-hmm. of IRC. And uh, you've been running a retreat center for f- almost 40 years. And uh, so not only running it, but you've, you've been practicing in running it. And uh, what do you wish you knew at the beginning, <laughs> 38 years ago, about practice, practicing at a retreat and running a retreat center that you know now? I'm going to probably say some very unpopular things. <laughs> but first I'll say something that's okay. <laughs> That'll be generally okay. Uh, I mean, one of the things that becomes so obvious, and you know, you know it, you're a great exemplar of it, and this whole place is an exemplar of it, uh, is that everything is a practice. I mean, it's just... It's so artificial to think practice means just sitting or just walking. It's like our life is our practice. And very often our interactions really bring up things that we don't see otherwise. You know, so uh, that's something we learned <laughs> over all the years. And it just becomes very obvious. And then learning the forms, the organizational forms, that can best um, allow the investigation of the different things that come up. Uh, so just one little thing at IMS, which we do, but it's a very different situation because uh, you know there's, there are 45 staff there, 40 staff, so it's a big, it's a big community and. You can imagine the interpersonal dynamics, and there's a lot going on. Uh, so we have uh, we have a whole staff Dharma program. It, it's a little different than here because it's not a volunteer staff. You know, but what's needed is the same, you know, whether people are getting paid or not paid. And it's just having uh, forms for the discussion of what comes up in the work situation. You know, and so we have what we call the Kalyanamitra groups of staff. Staff get together with a teacher uh, and just to discuss work-related practice issues. <laughs> you know, and so it really just demonstrates that it, it, it's all the same thing. Um, Unpopular side? <laughs> I was. <laughs> <laughs> I know that this may be <laughs> jumping into the fire. <laughs> uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll cushion it a little bit. <laughs> In a big organization <laughs> with many people, hierarchy of responsibilities is really helpful. So that this, and in the beginning, I mean, we, we all were 
of the 60s, <laughs> you know, and all organizations should be completely flat, you know, and consensus, everything, every decision consensus. And in the beginning years, it was chaos. It was just chaos. We, we had hours of discussion whether the staff should subscribe to Newsweek or to Time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it was on that level. Just everything became hour-long discussions. And so over the years, there just became a very clear delineation of responsibilities and who was responsible for what. And it just made everything very clear. And when the people, when everybody involved is empowering everyone else, everyone flourishes. But that was a different, that's not the frame in which we started. Uh, but that's, that's kind of on the organizational level, not so much the first point, point, point I was making, which is really essential. Um, so <laughs> I hope that <laughs> landed okay. <laughs> it's great, it's great. So thank you, Joseph, yeah. and uh, it's uh, really special to have you here, and I hope you come back, I hope you come back here to teach again. And <coughs> and uh, so th just yeah. it's really special. I just want to say, it is a spectacular place. I had no idea. <laughs> you know, I was like, it's the first visit, and it's... So you'll be back to do a retreat? <laughs> 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 no, it really, it really is amazing. So, yeah, you've all done an unbelievable job in this creation. <laughs>